0: Hello ladies and gentlemen and welcome back to another PC Boys podcast. This is your boy Logan and today we are leading up of course to Spider-Man No Way Home. And I thought what better thing to do than to go through each and every Spider-Man and compliment them and roast them for, you know, all of your enjoyment. Um, And I decided let's go through the positives first of each and every franchise um, from the MCU, Tom Holland iteration, to The Amazing Spider-Man, to Tobey Maguire's Spider-Man. We're going to cover all of them, pros and cons, leading up, of course, to Spider-Man No Way Home. And just talking Spider-Man in general. The other day we just talked about the Spider-Man DLC, it came out. So, uh, you know, for Marvel's Avengers. So go see that, of course, if you haven't seen it yet. Um, but without further ado, let's get into it. So, The Amazing Spider-Man is the most hated out of the live-action Spider-Man and I don't understand why. Number one, Andrew Garfield and Emma Stone's relationship in the in these two movies were... It was so believable and incredible that I was literally feeling like, wow, they are actually a couple in real life. Like, these guys actually love each other. That is how convincing their performance was. Mark Webb directed a film... ...with the first Amazing Spider-Man... ...that was one of the best emotional... ...resonating stories I have ever felt. You see... ...with the Maguire movies... ...it was very different. Maguire's movies had a very classic... ...Spider-Man comic book feel to them. However... There wasn't as much character development, in my opinion. The only characters I think or character that I think that Spider-Man had the best interactions with were Dr. Octavius and Harry Osborne. Um, especially in Spider-Man 3. So when it comes to every other character, though, it just feels like there's something missing there that misses, like, that real personal connection between us, the audience, and what we're viewing on screen. But with The Amazing Spider-Man, Mark Webb blew that shit out the window and said, well, fuck that. We're gonna give you a really good, emotionally heartfelt story. And he succeeded with flying colors. So in The Amazing Spider-Man... We get to see a Peter Parker, okay, who goes through a journey of becoming a man, and also he goes through this journey of being the bully that gets picked on, to getting his powers, wanting to get back at Flash, and on top of that, after he, of course, on un- or, or um, he causes the death of his uncle unintentionally, um, and by circumstance. He then uses his powers to go out and get revenge on his uncle's killer. Which is something that we see in Tobey Maguire's version and this version. But the main difference between Toby's version and Andrew's version is half of this movie shows, or a good portion of this movie shows Andrew Garfield's Spider-Man being resentful, filled with hate and revenge. It's, it's something that kind of brings his character and regresses him. You get to the point where uh, Flash Thompson, okay, who was bullying him in the beginning of the movie, comes up to him and actually tries to be empathetic to him. And he throws him against the locker in anger. And he's not accept- he can't accept the love from Gwen Stacy that he normally would accept on any other given day because of this anger and hatred and revenge that he is feeling and wants to to get so you see Peter Parker go from being somebody that is heroic in a sense of stopping Flash from bullying a kid who is an outsider to being somebody that is you know really like regressing as a person he's getting you know he's filling with hate he's filling with vengeance he, he just he has all the wrong things happening to him eternally and taking into account in the movie he's supposed to be a teenager that also makes it worse because as a teenager we've all have been there when you get hit with any emotion as a teenager it literally feels like a cataclysmic event is happening when shit is going wrong and of course for peter in this movie a lot is going wrong um we get the best um in my opinion this is the best uncle ben and aunt may on screen here is why When you look at Aunt May and Uncle Ben in The Amazing Spider-Man, they show the relationship between Aunt May and Uncle Ben. They show the relationship between Uncle Ben, May, and Peter. They really hit home with that. In the Tobey Maguire Spider-Man movies, you don't get to see Peter interact with his uncle or his Aunt May that much. Aunt May has her moments in the Spider-Man movies where she gives Peter some inspirational speech, but really, outside of that, you don't see Aunt May interact with Peter and talk to him. Now, when it comes down, or, you know, there is a few times, like in Spider-Man 2, when Peter confesses what happened that night with Uncle Ben, but you get what I'm saying. In the Amazing Spider-Man movies... Aunt May and Peter Parker have a lot of dialogue between each other, and he does with Uncle Ben when he's alive. It develops this emotional connection between you, Peter, and his aunt and uncle. And what ends up happening is by the end of the uh, uh, or of this stuff that happens, right? Um, and 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 Ben dies. You you feel Peter Parker's sadness, and you can understand why he feels these you know feelings of hatred and why he wants to get revenge. You understand that, because they built that connection from the very beginning of the movie, showing you how close he was to his uncle, and how distant he was from his aunt, and how they don't get each other like him and his uncle did. You start to see that, that emotional feeling. From the very beginning of this movie, they're building on emotional blocks. And I appreciate that. Because while, yes, the uh, Sam Raimi movies felt like Spider-Man movies, 100%. At the same time, there is not as much of character development and relationships that you can actually feel in those movies. In my opinion, I do not feel for most of the characters. I, the only time I feel for a character is Peter. Spider-Man 2 is a great example of that. Peter gets fucking battered down by life, just like he does in the comics. He gives up being Spider-Man, but then he questions, like, life's going good, but then he questions and feels guilt about, because he's seeing all the crimes and bad things happening around him when he stops being Spider-Man. Then he suits up again and pushes through all the shit that happens to him to be the man the city needs. In The Amazing Spider-Man, the characters, you feel for every single one. You feel for Peter, who's got a lot going on in his life and bad shit happening to him. You feel bad for Aunt May and what's happening with her. You feel bad for Gwen Stacy. Gwen Stacy's father in this movie has an arc alongside um, alongside um, Flash. He goes from hating Spider-Man to respecting Spider-Man and Peter. And Peter Parker and Gwen Stacy and Aunt May carry even more emotional weight going into the second movie. Now, yes, in the second movie, the villains are not as compelling. In The Amazing Spider-Man 1, they had a deleted scene of the lizard with his son. His son. That scene would add so much more emotional weight to the lizard's character. And the lizard, I thought, was a pretty good villain for Spider-Man. Peter was trying to help him, trying to help Dr. Connors regrow his arm, right? Figure out about his dad. Him and Dr. Connors grew close. You could say he was a mentor-slash-father figure to him. Because Peter's a genius. His Uncle Ben isn't a genius. And he's feeling very close with Dr. Connors because not only did he work with his dad, but he's also a genius. So he feels very comforted by this. Dr. Connors is trying to regrow his arm and keep his job at Oscorp. And of course, if we knew that he had a son, which they deleted that scene, which I don't know why. Mark Webb was onto something there to flesh out that villain even more. It's too bad for Sony putting that on the chopping block. But you get to feel emotion. The fact of him being the lizard. When he first starts out being the lizard, he's not trying to do anything diabolical, like um, the main difference between uh, Norman Osborn's Green Goblin and Dr. Otto Octavius. Octavius is, yes, following his dream, but he's trying to do it for a noble cause. To create, uh, their, in that movie's you know world, quote-unquote green energy, by harnessing fusion. Where... Green Goblin is just out for his own selfish game. And to, and to keep his job and his company. It's a, it's a very selfish thing. Green Goblin's a very different character than Doc Ock is. But then you look at the Lizard. The Lizard is just trying to, yes, selfishly get his arm back. But at the same time, he's trying to keep his job. And knowing that he has a kid, at least through that scene that they deleted, you come to realize, okay, so him losing his job is a big deal a huge deal because obviously as we all know if if anybody who listens to my podcast's parents if you lost your job and it was the you know big financial backbone of your family you're gonna feel guilty as all hell right so this guy injects a unfinished untested serum into him as the first human trial subject turns himself into the lizard okay and when the lizard takes over it starts corrupting his brain so it doesn't the serum to the point where he's just trying to turn everybody into lizards giant lizards, and his character, unfortunately, goes from this relatable, very well-written character to this, oh, well, my mind's all fucked up, but it's also very similar to Dr. Otto Octavius, I draw a lot of parallels between the lizard and Dr. uh, Dr. Otto Octavius, the lizard's dream is to grow his arm, so he has two arms, can live like everybody else and do what everybody else does, Dr. Otto Octavius had a dream to create stable fusion energy to create renewable power for the entire world. Both men had a dream. A noble dream. Octavius, yes, wanted to be known for doing something great, but it would help the world. Same thing with the lizard. Not only would growing his arm, like, that's his personal goal. Yeah, I want to get my arm grown back, but that, um... That serum would also help military veterans be able to grow back limbs. It would help literally anybody that is disabled or is missing a body part. That they could regrow it back with a serum. So both men have this idea of helping the world out. But they also have a selfish goal. The lizard getting his arm back and Dr. Otto Octavius completing his dream. Obsessed with completing that dream. Like the Lizard's obsessed with having his arm grow back. Both characters, once they have their mistake happen, A, Connors, being forced by losing his job and not having the resources to grow his arm back, injects himself, taking a very risky, very risky approach to completing his dream. Dr. Otto Octavius allows... His fusion reaction to well, let's just say get out of control and not shut it down as soon as it does. He waits for it to get quote unquote under control. Very risky. In both situations, both people end up going insane. The serum corrupts the lizard's mind, corrupts Kurt Connors' mind into thinking, okay, well, I need to, you know, I, I got, I gotta make everybody a lizard. I gotta make everybody better than what a normal human being is improve, and make a whole new species, essentially, and then Doc Ock is, well, I have to rebuild the machine again, I I have to do it, the arms take control of his mind and make him do things, so the serum and the arms kind of act as the same, um, turning point to insanity for both villains, both villains have noble goals, but they also... Do reckless things to achieve said goals, and that ends up costing them their sanity and their goodwill and turns them both into villains. Now, yes, the two movies are very different Spider Man 2 and 3, and you know how that final battle takes place. But Peter Parker tries to help the lizard and shows the lizard remorse, a lot like Toby McGuire's Peter Parker shows remorse to Doc Ock. But the thing with the Amazing Spider-Man movies that people overlook, and I know I've been comparing it to Spider-Man 2 and Doc Ock and the Lizard a lot here the past few minutes, but the thing that I'm trying to hammer home is that when it comes to the Amazing Spider-Man, they have developed and fleshed out their characters very well, including the villain, and it's a very well-done film. In my opinion, I think the Amazing Spider-Man 1 is a well-done film, other than maybe how Spider-Man's suit looks. That is really the only major complaint I have about that first movie. The first movie was a really well-done film. And I think people need to stop hating on the first Amazing Spider-Man. Even if you're a Maguire fan. Sure, you don't gotta sit there and say Andrew Garfield is, you know, he's not my favorite Spider-Man. True, but you are you really gonna sit there and say that the Amazing Spider-Man 1 is the worst Spider-Man movie you've ever watched? I would think not. It's not that bad. I mean, if you can get over the look of his suit, if you can get over the look of, you know, how... Peter Parker acts. You you can enjoy the film. That's what I have to do. I enjoy every Spider-Man iteration. For different reasons. <laughs> the reason I love the Andrew Garfield. Amazing Spider-Man films. Is because of the characters. The way that they're fleshed out. The way that you feel. Pete, oh my gosh. Peter and... <laughs> Uh, Gwen have the best romantic relationship I've seen on a superhero movie hands down seeing Emma Stone and Andrew Garfield yes they were dating in real life but to see Mark Webb write and direct these characters in such a way that they are believable sure they might be dating in real life but we're throwing them both into completely different roles to two different people's lives one of them being a superhero you look at Gwen you look at her relationship with Peter from beginning to end. They start out as really good friends. I mean, that's the that's the thing that really sells that love story to begin with. Peter and, and Gwen aren't just like, oh, I loved her at first sight. When we meet Peter Parker at the very beginning of Spider-Man for, Sam Raimi, Raimi's movie, we know that he has a crush on Mary Jane. There's nothing that builds up to that relationship and that crush. You don't see that. It's just, it's there, right? But when it comes to you know, Gwen Stacy, Peter Parker doesn't just be like, oh, well, that's the girl I like, no, there's a friendship built between the two, they both are science nerds, you know, they're both really smart people, they're both good people, (laughs) and him and her, you know, end up getting to talk and chit-chat for a little bit, and she admires what Peter does in the beginning of the movie, standing up to the bully to help an innocent person, But she's like, you know, what you did was stupid, but it was great. Like, she really admired what he did, regardless of how dumb it was. And Peter, yes, does have a crush on her. But they become friends before they go on a date. Before they, well, before she invites him over to her house for Branzino. And then he has no idea how to fucking apparently cut a fish head off and eat a fish. But we're not going to roast Peter on eating fish, okay? Not everybody does that, but... It's a really interesting dynamic because they start them off as very awkward. You know, just two people having casual conversation. And you can see that there's interest between the two, but they're clearly just friends at that point. And once they do become relationship partners, you can see how Peter worries about her. Gwen is her own person. She, does, she gets in the middle of the danger to try to help Peter which is a great trait about Gwen. She doesn't try to outshine Peter, and it's also not like in today's like in today's world a lot of the time when you see a female character it's I'm better than a man or I don't need a man or I'm just super strong and powerful and oh, I, we have a really strong female character. Congratulations. That does nothing. Gwen Stacy is a perfect example of a strong lead that happens to be female and a great character that happens to be female Gwen Stacy while being vulnerable in these movies which she is she's not a damsel in distress because she is helping Peter but at the same time they show how mortal she is compared to Spider-Man the amazing Spider-Man 2 is a perfect example she goes to help Peter okay knowing the danger to fight Electro The Green Goblin drops her, Spider-Man the Green Goblin, fight in the clock tower, and she ends up getting her neck snapped on Peter's line, and she hits the ground very hard, and she dies. While she, yes, made up her own decision and had what you could call a strong female moment, and she also knew the risk going into helping Peter, she was a strong female character, but she had flaws, and she actually ended up paying the ultimate price for doing something really heroic. She helped the superhero. She helped the person that she loved. But it costed her her life. She wasn't like a Captain Marvel where. Oh I'm just going to beat everybody up with no problem. You know. And I'm a strong female. You got to like me for. Like it's not like that. Her character was a strong female. But she had emotional problems. When it came to the relationship between her and Peter. You could see they were both hurting. From the situation. And she had flaws. She was risky. That was Gwen's biggest flaw throughout the entire franchise. She was a very smart person, a very caring and kind person. It made her a very likable character, and it made her sell the innocence when she dated Peter, and it also sold the chemistry that they had as well, but she did have one major flaw. No matter how smart she was, she was reckless. Peter understood this. He didn't try to keep her from helping him because he, he thought that she couldn't help him. It's because he doesn't want nothing bad to happen to her. <laughs> she helps him, but she ends up dying because of it. Because of the, of the reckless decision of being a mortal human being, getting mixed up with superpowered people. Gwen's arc through the two movies was actually very well done. Peter, Parker, and Gwen, their relationship was sold so well that you believed it actually existed. You could see the flaws of the two people individually. You could. And you also saw the pain that they went through. The Amazing Spider-Man 2 did this very well. Peter and Gwen were on and off the entire movie. You could see the pain in her eyes in his eyes because he loves her and wants to be with her. But he also made a promise to her dad, who died, to the lizard To stay away from her so that he could protect her. But that hurts him because obviously he can't be with her. So you have this internal conflict going on between Gwen and between Peter. Gwen eventually, you know, goes to move on and go to Oxford, you know, over in England. And then Peter wants to go with her and he's sick of running. And of course that's when we go into the final battle and everything happens. The one thing the Amazing Spider-Man franchise did well was write good characters. Yeah, I'm not talking about the villains from the Amazing Spider-Man 2. Peter, Gwen, Ben, Aunt May, the Lizard. These characters were were written to perfection, in my opinion. They are what drive that entire two-movie franchise. And yeah, unfortunately, only Aunt May, Peter, and Gwen were the only ones who drive it in the second installment, but they did a great job. I think them focusing on Peter and Gwen's very awkward and not normal circumstance relationship really helped i think that it did a service if you will to the films and mark webb his first movie was a romantic comedy about two people he knows how to deal with human emotion and creating good characters that's why i like the amazing spider-man and that's why i think people need to give the movies a chance especially the first one there are some very well written characters in these movies yeah sure the amazing spider-man 2 is a villain overload cluster fucked mess but if you look at it on the side of how gwen peter aunt may ben and the lizard were written you can see a lot of good things there a lot of good things and it's very important to understand this because Andrew Garfield, unfortunately, got shafted when it came to his franchise. Every Spider-Man is a different take. Tobey Maguire is the classic Spider-Man hero that people look up to, that inspires them. Andrew Garfield is the very down-to-earth Spider-Man who feels like a tangible person that you would actually meet in real life. That had an amazing romance story. And I'm a guy. Okay. I'm a guy. Romance is not why I'm going to watch a superhero movie. It's for the action. It's for a good story. But when you get me. A guy. Invested into your love story. That means you did some fucking good writing. Because majority of the time. Guys are not going to movies for love stories. But if it does tend to grip them. You did a good job with your writing. So you had a great love story. Well written characters. And a very relatable, down-to-earth, realistic Spider-Man. The movie did those things very well. That's what I liked about The Amazing Spider-Man. One. The second movie had the great relationship, and still a very down-to-earth Peter Parker, dealing with internal conflict more so than external. Also with the Harry Osborne thing. You know, yeah, you can't buy Harry and Peter's relationship like you can with, you know, DeFran- or Franco and mcguire but at the same time you still see peter parker deep down feel sorrow he wants to help his best friend but he doesn't want to give him his blood because it could do something much worse so yeah when it comes down to it the amazing spider-man has well-written characters and unfortunately because of studio interference with the second movie that's the reason it sucks so bad i think that mark webb could have made an amazing (laughs) spider spider-man 2 no pun intended. He literally could have made The Amazing Spider-Man 2 amazing if the studio hadn't interfered, thrown in a bunch of villains, and, you know, move away from the very story-character-centered shit. That's what made The Amazing Spider-Man 1 great. That's what made it an emotional film. The, the fucking story, the characters, the way they were written, and they acted them to perfection, it worked. When we get into the next, um... Spider-Man movie, um, which will be Tobey Maguire's Spider-Man, and we're going to go into what positives are there are about his in a different podcast, because we're going to make each thing the pros and negatives of each franchise, um, a podcast, um, the next one we will be covering is Tobey Maguire and his Spider-Man in the pros. We're going to do all of them, um, pro-wise first, and then we'll go into the negatives of all the franchises, but so, this is the pro of, or the pros of the Amazing Spider-Man franchise. Characters are well-written, an amazing love story that was also well-written, a first movie that was a very grounded take on Spider-Man, done well, with great characters, and a really good villain that is very comparable to Doc Ock in many ways from Spider-Man 2. Those are the great things about the Amazing Spider-Man franchise, okay? And I think that the, it's, it's overly hated. I really do. I think if people just sat down and watched the movie and enjoyed them for what they are, knowing they aren't Tobey Maguire films or Tom Holland films, people would come to appreciate it more. You had a director. This was his second major film ever. The Amazing Spider-Man was his second major film ever. <laughs> That's a lot. And he did pretty well for the first movie. And then the second movie got ruined by Studio Interference. But I still found enjoyment in both those movies. So, next time we all meet, we're going to talk about Toby Maguire's Spider-Man and why he is the most, I guess you could say, iconic of all the Spider-Men in terms of live action. And we're going to talk about why we like his franchise. Um, and then we will talk about Tom's. And then we'll go into the negatives, starting with The Amazing Spider-Man. I know you might be asking, why am I starting with The Amazing Spider-Man over starting with Toby or Tom? Because The Amazing Spider-Man, I think, needs to have a lot more praise than it does. And I think that Andrew Garfield deserves to have some love by the Spider-Man fan base Because the amount of people that hate his iteration, I think it's very unjustified. I really do. Because for what they were going for, they did very well. And I don't hate what they did. I actually enjoy the fact that there are three different Spider-Men that I can enjoy for different reasons. If I'm watching the same character played by different people and it's the same exact story and it's the same exact type of writing, it gets stale. It does get stale. Yes, the the core characteristics of Spider-Man and Peter Parker should always be there. But the world around them, the technology in the films and everything, all that stuff can change. The writing around the character, the story-wise can change. Villain origins can get slightly tweaked. That's fine. The only thing that has to stay the same is the core of Spider-Man. What drives Spider-Man to be Spider-Man? Why does he do what he does? That has to stay the same. Not the suit. Not the villains around him, the world around him. Just the core principles of why he does what he does. But thank you very much for listening, ladies and gentlemen. I hope you all enjoyed, and I will catch you all in the next one.